Father, as we just sang, consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Amen. Well, I'm glad to see you. When Pastor Van sent out the announcement on Thursday that he was not going to be here and that a lawyer was speaking instead, I thought we'd have an empty house. Uh, I thought it'd just be ever to me, but uh, here we are. Uh, last Sunday, I was coming back from my 40th law school reunion. Bobby told me in the first service, the mistake I made in the first service was I mentioned where I went to law school. So I won't tell you that I went to the same law school as Pastor uh, President Obama and six U.S. Supreme Court justices, but that's where I was last weekend for our 40th reunion and spent uh, five hours with 30 students from the law school and Kennedy School of Government uh, and had a wonderful time and met a lot of classmates, many of them wrestling with issues that we all wrestle with. Uh, 52 of my 525 classmates I have died already. And a lot of my classmates wrestling with cancer and health issues. And the one thing I was able to do in the three days we spent together was to share a little bit about my story, to give them some hope. And this morning, um, I'm going to focus on hope. Uh, the outline is in your bulletin, who's directing your parade, discovering God in the details of life. I'd like to have you take out that outline. We'll go through it. I have three goals whenever I speak. My first goal is to bear witness of Jesus Christ because that's the last thing he asked us to do before his ascension. In Acts 1.8, as he was talking to his disciples just moments before the ascension, he said, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then he left. So the last thing he asked us to do is to bear witness of Jesus Christ. This morning we sang victory in Jesus, praise him, praise him. We sang these incredible songs. And that's what I want to do this morning is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to do is to challenge you to look for God in the ordinary things of life, in the details, the little things, the things that we overlook, that we take for granted. Uh, now, I, yesterday when I stopped by to run off copies of that outline, I just picked up a book that was laying on the floor in my office. Uh, I have about 4,000 books in my library. I have about 50 that I haven't read, and they're sitting on the floor. And I just grabbed one written by a friend of mine. He's my mentor. He's a law school dean, law school professor, a pastor. His name is Lynn Buzzard, and he's written a book on Ezekiel. So I thought, well, this is light reading, it's sort of like John Grisham, you know. <laughs> so I just, uh, I hadn't read it. So I just start reading this book on Ezekiel, Dry Bones, Flying Chariots, and Edible Scrolls, you know. And I get to page 30. This is yesterday afternoon at 5.30. And here is what he said. Undergirding the entire prophetic witness of Ezekiel is a core biblical conviction that history is the arena of God's action. God acts in and through history. In part, one reads history to find out God's character, his purposes, and identity. As my colleague, Sam Erickson, keeps insisting 
History is his story. The God of the Bible is identified as a God who acts. God is dynamically engaged, in, engaged with his created world. Now, I don't read that to boast about the fact that I was mentioned in the book. I didn't know I was in that book until 5.30 yesterday afternoon when I read it for the first time. See, now, is that just that I'm one of the luckiest people in the world or that there is something going on here, that there is a dimension that God exists and he does little things? When I read that, I knew that I was on the same page as God. You're going to hear stories this morning. Many stories of details, not the big million dollar or $10 million gifts, but little stories, a parking space. How can God be in a parking space? He's there all the time. So that's, that's this morning, challenging you to look at God and the ordinary things in life. By the way, I do have my little timer here. Actually, I came up seven minutes early in the first service, so I'm going to make up for it this service. <laughs> uh, the third thing I want to do is impact one person in this audience. When I speak, that's my goal. I'm not after moving masses of people. I go for one person. If I impact one person for each time I speak, mission accomplished. I don't know if it's you or you or you. I don't know who you are, but watch out. I'm out to get you. <laughs> now, when I was in, in school and I, nobody liked pop quizzes, but here's a pop quiz. It's at the top of your outline there. What is the most frequent command found in Scripture? It appears 365 times. The most frequent command. Now, this is Fellowship Bible Church. We should know this one, right? Some people would say loving God. No. It's in the line. Loving neighbor. No. Anybody know? Praise God. Good guess, but wrong. The most frequent command in Scripture, 365 times, one for every day of the year, is fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear not. God says in his word more times than any other command, fear not. Now that should tell us something about God's view of us, that we are fear-driven people. Now in the last several months, I'd say the last even year, I have never seen more fear-mongering than I've seen this last year. This latest thing is the swine flu. Did you know in the last 35 years, one million Americans have died from the flu? One million Americans. 4,000 Americans die every single month from the flu. 36,000 Americans die every year from the flu. Now we have this swine flu. And Mexico City said they had 156 deaths. And then on Thursday they said, oh, it was seven. And then this morning it was 102. Now when you believe statistics from Mexico City, you know, it's just uh, questionable here. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't be prudent and wise and careful in what we do. But I sometimes feel manipulated. The bird flu. Remember the bird flu? <laughs> SARS. I mean, on and on. And then, of course, we got the economy. Six months ago, we're told that unless we bail out General Motors and Chrysler, they will go into bankruptcy, and that's the end of the car industry. This week, we're told unless they go into bankruptcy, they can't survive. And I'm saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? We need a trillion dollars to bail us out or else we're going to go into the tank and it's going to be a catastrophe. Well, none of that money really has filtered in and we're hearing now, I listen to the news all the time, well, we're turning the corner. There's, there's a glimmer of hope, you know. Fear, fear. Well, I'm here this morning to encourage you because I'm, as you'll see, I believe in a God who's in control. 
And that's why we're going to ask you to follow this outline. Now, perspective. Perspective. God's perspective on reality. The eye is the lamp of the body. By the way, some of you will notice this outline prayer because six years ago I taught a Sunday school class for 15 weeks using the same outline. We're just gonna, this is a little review for those of you that were not Sunday school class and it's just a way for us to remember things. The acrostic. So P, perspective. God's perspective. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is clear, the body's full of light. Meaning, if you have a right perspective on life, then life will be full of light. But if you have a wrong perspective, watch out. Danger follows. So, now Moses, in Deuteronomy 4.39, wrote, Acknowledge, which means admit as being true, and take to heart this day, in other words, live it, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below there is no other. It's amazing that Moses would even have to say that to the Israelites. After all, what have they been through? The Exodus? Remember the Exodus? Going through the Red Sea? There was a cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night, the manna. You would think that the Israelites would understand that there is a God, but he, but he has to remind them that there is a God in heaven above and on earth below there is no other. You know, sometimes we are a little dense. We just don't get it. So this morning, I want us to get that God is engaged in heaven above and on the earth below, and there is no other. And then, of course, Moses wrote one psalm, Psalm 90. Maybe you didn't know that psalm that Moses ever wrote a psalm. Psalm 90. And here's the verse. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by, or like a watch in the night. Now, what does that mean? His story in history and our lives are parades written, directed, and produced by the creator, designer, and the author of life and the author of our faith, Jesus Christ. A little application. Yes, how many of you went to the Winchester Apple Blossom Parade yesterday? How many of you have ever been to an Apple Blossom Parade? Okay, let me tell you a story. Bobby grew up in Berryville. I'm a West Coast Los Angeles boy, okay? She told me... 25 years ago, we've got to go to the Apple Blossom Parade. It's the greatest parade in the world. And I said, Bobby, Bobby, I've been to seven Rose Parades. <laughs> they show the Rose Parade for 55 years. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, it's always a Rose Parade. When was the Apple Blossom Parade on national television? Never. Finally, I gave in, and we went to the Apple Blossom Parade and sat on that main boulevard going through Winchester. And it is the longest parade in the world. <laughs> every horse east of the Mississippi was there. Every, every band south of the Canadian border had been invited. Every police officer, you know, they were all there. And of course, these Shriners driving these little cars. And I sat there with my book and watching this thing go on with Ryan and Monica and Bobby. And, and, and then about halfway through this long parade, I heard a different sound. It was a band, but it wasn't crisp like the Marine Band. This was, this was a different sound. And I looked down, and it was a small band. There were three abreast and about eight or nine deep, about 24, 27 musicians. And, and it just, it was different. I couldn't figure it out until I saw the banner. It was a West Virginia blind and deaf marching band. Wow! See, the blind musicians could play music, but they didn't know where they were going. 
They needed guides. The deaf guides couldn't hear a tone, but boy, could they guide the blind. And so they held on to each of the musicians by the elbow, and the three abreast, eight deep, 24, went down the main boulevard at Winchester Apple Blossom Parade, and I said to Bobby and Monica and Ryan, there's the church, the best illustration I've ever seen of the church. See, we all have gifts, as, as Gary prayed this morning. We all have gifts, abilities, resources, strengths, every one of us that should be used for the body of Christ. And we all have needs, weaknesses, shortcomings that can be met by others. We have this teen event. There are kids who can mow lawns and do a lot of work, but they need some money to go to the, to the camp. So here we are, needs and resources. And just like this, these deaf guides led these blind musicians. They were walking down the street, making beautiful music, different music, marching to the drumbeat of a different drummer. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be different. Small but different. Now, if you wanted to see the whole parade, where would you need to be? Could you jump up high enough? How do you see a five-mile parade? Where do you need to be? Up above, right? If you're up a couple of miles, two or three miles, you can see the whole parade, right? Well, see, the way God views history, history is a long parade, as we saw in Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by, or like a watch in the night. See, if you're up high enough, he sees yesterday, today, and forever is the eternal present. There is no yesterday, today, or forever. History, he sees the beginning of history, the first day, and he sees the last day of history. Sam Erickson, born September 4, 1944. I will die September 3, 2043. You know, I'm, I'm planning to go for 99. <laughs> and he knows every single day of my life and your life. Because he oversees, see, it's, it's just he sees it all. That's the perspective we're supposed to have. So we don't have to fear. Does God know what's going on in our economy? Absolutely. Does he know what's going on in your life? Absolutely. Is he going to be surprised tomorrow when he reads the Washington Post? No. So, perspective. There is God's perspective, and then there's man's perspective. Let's take God's. Now, moving on to our response. Once we have this perspective that God is the director, the writer, the producer of the parade of your life, how do we respond? We respond the proper way when things go wrong. Psalm 139.16 is a verse that I've quoted a thousand times. See, I never went to seminary. I've never had hermeneutics, homiletics, calisthenics, you know, all that stuff. I went to law school. I'm supposed to, you're my jury, the closing argument. Okay, now this is the closing argument. Part of the closing argument, I want to convince you that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's David. I believe and have for decades that life is a story. I signed my newsletters, and I got several of them out there. I wrote President Obama a letter in February on abortion. Pick it up and read it. It has gone global. It's been quoted on six continents. What can you say to President Obama about abortion? Read it. Now, every day ordained for me were written 
Life is a story. Therefore, if life is a story, there's an author to the story. There's a theme to the story. There are, there's adventure, drama, mystery, suspense. And there's always another page. Because life is a story. And then Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God. True? In all things God works. True? In all things God works for the good. True? In all things God works for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Name one time when God did not work for the good. In your life. Name one time. Well, story time. If life is his story, written by the author of life, how do you turn a serious illness and serious accident into global blessings? As some of you know, 10 years ago, as of 10 years ago, I hadn't been sick a day in my life. I was sort of proud of that fact. And then I started sensing I had some problems. I went to three different doctors, and they said nothing wrong. Standard American way to medicine is here's my pill and here's a bill. Always the pill first and then the bill. And three doctors, because I was going to go to Eastern Europe, to Albania, Bulgaria, Romania for lawyers' conferences. And, and I just wanted to make sure I was healthy to go. And they said, no problem. Well, Bobby and I went out to dinner two days before we were, I was supposed to leave and went to this restaurant. And the good news about this restaurant was that the rescue squad drivers at Fairfax Hospital come to the bar after work. Because I fainted in that restaurant. I passed out. I was rushed to the hospital. The doctor said, nothing wrong. And I said, you don't just pass out. There's obviously something wrong. So I canceled my trip to Eastern Europe. I had other people covering for me. And then a week later, I discovered I had massive, massive cancer. My doctor said, with your kind of cancer, Sam, chemo, radiation, drugs, and surgery, in a typical case, 60% live five years. Yours is 20 times worse than typical. Basically, he said, there's nothing I can do for you. Well, Bobby and Bobby's been in nutrition for 30 years. She knows more about nutrition than 150,000 doctors. She's she just she goes to sleep reading Prevention magazine, and so she gave me a book on how to deal with cancer, because I believe that God designed the body. How many of you believe God designed the body? How many believe that God designed the immune system? How many of you believe that if you handle the immune system that God designed for the body, that there's hope? And here I am, 10 years later, no chemotherapy, no radiation, no drugs. I've had some, what I call, harvesting of a few bladder cancer. And so it started. My doctor has said time and again, whatever you're doing, Sam, bottle up and sell it because I can't touch your results. What I do and what I've been doing is out on the little piece I wrote, where is God when you have cancer? That's my story. So there I have cancer. Now, one thing I discovered is nobody prays for healthy lawyers. <laughs> I've done a survey of 40,000 people, and I've asked them, how many of you prayed for a lawyer this week who's not a member of your family? Nobody prays for healthy lawyers. They don't like us. In fact, I saw one headline in the Washington Times this week, last Sunday, I think it was, it says, 30,000 lawyers lose their jobs. And I said to Bobby, just one headline that's not going to bring any sympathy. Can you imagine 30,000 lawyers lose their jobs? Uh, that's no sympathy card. That was, and so, so God gave me the gift of cancer. So I got prayer support all over the world. And that prayer support started waning a little bit, I think in 2003, because I'm walking down the steps in my home, uh, wooden steps, and I trip and I fall, and I break seven ribs and puncture my right lung. Now, I had never had pain until I break seven ribs. Now, that's painful. I'm rushed to the hospital. 
And, and I find out a week later that the cancer had spread to my left lung that I would never have discovered if I had not fallen. Now, I came out with a little card after that, this little when things go wrong card. You've got one in your, in your bulletin. I've made a, a million copies of this card in 24 languages, Chinese, Russian, French, Hindi, Arabic, Hebrew, Swedish, all of the world. This little card being passed out when things go wrong. Take one, keep it in your wallet or your purse. When you meet somebody, when things go on, pass it on. I've got another 200,000 of them sitting at home, so I've got plenty. Give them away. See, this card would never have happened if I hadn't gotten cancer. If I hadn't fallen and broken those ribs, it would never have happened. See, you turn a challenge into a blessing. As Bobby will tell you, I have never complained one day about my cancer. In fact, it has opened up opportunities for me every single day, sometimes every week. I, I talk to people all over the U.S. and all over the world. They call up and say, I've got terminal this, terminal that, terminal that. And I point them to some places where they can get some hope. So that's how a serious illness and a serious accident is turned into a blessing. Response. When things go wrong... You turn to the one who's the author of the story. A brings just availability. You have the right perspective, proper response. That leads to availability. A distinctive of the followers of Jesus is being available to those in need. The Good Samaritan parable, probably his best known parable. A lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer wanted to have a meaningful, purposeful, challenging life. What must I do? What did Jesus respond to? Two questions. What is written in the law and how do you apply it? And the lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Now do this and you'll have the kind of fulfilling, meaningful life you're looking for. And then it says a lawyer wishing to justify himself. You ever try to justify yourself? Another word is what I call it, rationalize. Do you know what you do and what we do when we rationalize? We tell ourselves rational lies. Think about it. Rationalize, we tell it rational, it's very logical. Oh yeah, it's very rational, but it's all lies. And this lawyer was trying to rationalize who is my neighbor. And Jesus tells the story of the man going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among thieves. He's robbed, beaten, and left for dead. Along comes a priest, a pastor, a religious person, and he passes by on the other side. Along comes a Levite, another educated lawyer, business, whatever. He's educated. He's also religious. Passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a reject at the bottom of the list, as far as the Jews were concerned, a Samaritan stops and helps the man, takes him to an inn, and says to the innkeeper, here's some money. Take care of him, and I'll be back to pick up whatever else it costs. And Jesus asked the lawyer, which of those three proved to be neighborly to the man at the side of the road? And the lawyer said, the one who showed compassion. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, the bottom line for those who claim to follow Jesus is your availability to God's people. See, so many of us, it's so easy to come for an hour Sunday morning and then come back 167 hours later and not do anything in between. 
that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is the doing. We see it in, in uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, he, he, he's got, Jesus says this, I was hungry and what did you do? I was thirsty and what did you do? I was naked, what did you do? I was homeless, a stranger, what did you do? I was sick and what did you do? I was in prison and what did you do? Well, I had a Bible study about sick people. And he would say, get an F in a class. It's not enough to get head knowledge. It has to be transferred from head to action. Availability. Now, I want to tell you a story about a law student that called me up in December of 1982. At that time, I was head of Christian Legal Society in Washington, D.C., a group of some 4,000 Christian lawyers. I was involved in the U.S. Supreme Court on major cases in the U.S. Congress on major religious liberty issues. And this uh, student calls me from Philadelphia. He says, Mr. Erickson, my parents are missionaries in South Africa. I have no place to spend Christmas. Can I come down and spend Christmas with you? And I thought, the nerve. <laughs> I mean, Christmas is family. Here's a total stranger, calls me up and wants to spend Christmas with me. And I thought, of course, there is that story about the Christ child and Mary and Joseph. There was no room in the inn. <laughs> I mean, that innkeeper, if there's an innkeeper in history that comes down with gets an F in a class, it's the innkeeper who told Mary and Joseph there's no room in the inn, right? And I couldn't do that at Christmas. And of course, Jesus said, I was a stranger and you took me in. And so I said, John, come on down. See, he thought he was going to get some First Amendment, constitutional law stuff, and, but I had another project for him. See, at that time, we were moving from a, a quarters where we were paying monthly rent, and I needed to find some free space. And our church, Emmanuel Bible Church at that time in Springfield, Virginia, they had this old farmhouse that they were going to bulldoze. And I went to the head of the trustees, and I said, uh, what, are you, what are your plans for the building? He says, oh, we're going to bulldoze it. It's a nuisance. It's an eyesore. I said, what if, what if uh, we fixed it up for you for free? A new roof, carpet, Venetian blinds, painted inside and outside. What if we took care of it for you? Could, we, could Christian Legal Society use it for free? And he said, yeah, that sounds okay. So uh, I, had, I had a building that I needed to be fixed up. A few days later, a friend at the church that had lent me, I'd lent him some money, comes over to me and says, Sam, I wish I could pay you back. I just have nowhere to pay you back. And uh, you know, I could maybe work it off somehow. And I said, Tim, uh, wh what do you know? What can you do? He said, well, I've painted houses. Oh, you've painted houses. See that old farmhouse over there that the church owns? Yeah. Well, the church has given me permission to fix it up and to use it for Christian Legal Society. So you paint it, and we're, the debt is forgiven. He said, great, where's the paint? I said, Tim, that's your challenge. <laughs> so Tim went over there that afternoon to check out the job. It's not a big house, a small farmhouse. And it had, it was an old house, so it had a cellar, not a basement. The difference, a basement has concrete floor, concrete walls, a cellar has a dirt floor. And, and you know, at cellars, you open up the doors this way instead of walking down steps. And so he opened up the doors, went into the cellar, had his flashlight and checked it out. And there in the corner, Tim saw seven five-gallon cans of white exterior and interior paint that had been sitting there for years. Now, remember the story of Peter and paying taxes and the fish and the coin? See, I happen to believe in the detail. Were those seven 
cans of white paint, was I just lucky? Or was that an example of God in the details? Who cares about seven gallons of paint unless you need it, see? This is my God, this is your God. When we sing these songs about Lord of Lord and King of that's the God that we worship. And what I'm challenging you this morning is this happens to us every single day. Oh, it can't be. Yes. How many of you woke up this morning? Some of you are still sleeping. <laughs> do you know the one thing you can't do is wake yourself up? Oh, I set an alarm clock. Do you know there's 6,000 Americans that died yesterday and many of them set the alarm clock? Oh, my wife is going to wake me up. Or my husband. Or my parents. See, when God says it's over, you can set all the alarm clocks and leave all sorts of messages, but you won't wake up. The one thing God does for you every day is wake you up. When I wake up in the morning, most mornings I say, wow, thank you, God, for the gift of one more day. Let the adventure begin. And when I leave my house, I leave my house, I'm anticipating that I will see God in the details. Now, when John arrived, the law student, he thought he, he was going to do some law stuff. And I said, John, you ever painted? Yeah, that's what I did before I started law school. I was a house painter. Great. You're equipped. You're prepared. I want that house painted. So he painted that house. That was 1982, Christmas. Nine years later, John is working for a lawyer outside Seattle. He's a partner at this law firm. And um, at that time, 1991, I'd been to Moscow as a guest of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. I was interested in what was happening in the former communist countries after the fall of communism. And the Lord just opened up an incredible door and one morning when I was in Moscow, I was then head of Christian Legal Society, a group of 4,500 Christian lawyers. And I said to a friend who was with me, I hope I meet a Christian lawyer before I go back to the U.S. Well, this is so, the Soviet Union. That was a silly request because every lawyer had to be a Marxist, a communist, an atheist. And for Sam Erickson to say, I hope I meet a Christian lawyer, I mean, that is, that's, that's just downright dumb. An hour later, I'm meeting with the president of the Russian Bar Association. There are four Russian lawyers in, in there, including a woman. She introduced herself. My name is Natalia Vizetskaya. I'm a lawyer, and I'm Russian Orthodox. My friend said, hey, you got your wish. So I went out to lunch with Natalia, and I asked her, why were you here? And she said, two days ago, I filed papers to start the first prison ministry in the history of the Soviet Union, a legal aid ministry for prisoners. And I mentioned to the clerk at the Ministry of Justice in Moscow that my priest was on my board. And one of my, Sam Erickson's hosts from the, from the Soviet Academy of Sciences was standing next to her when she said, church. And he turns to her and said, are you a lawyer? She said, yes. Do you go to church? And she said, yes. Do you want to meet four lawyers from America who go to church? And that's how I met Natalia. And then she told me what she was planning to do. Legal aid for prisoners. Ministry like prison fellowship for ministry. Salvation Army. One woman taking on the whole Soviet system. And I said to her, Natalia, isn't this dangerous? And she said, the worst they can do is kill me. Now, when you meet somebody with that attitude, say, okay, I'm going to invest in her. I met her son a couple of days later, incredible young man, inviting him to come to the United States, and he's our Russian son. He's been here for 18 years. His name is Nikki, and he has a little grandson. We had a little grandson named Alexei, and they're expecting a little granddaughter in a few weeks. All because of Natalia. What did Natalia, what has she done for the last 18 years? One woman with some volunteers. She has responded to 24,000 
letters from prison inmates. She has filed 3,000 appeals on behalf, on behalf of prisoners. Why? Because she said, Sam, the Bible says I was in prison and you visited me. And she was one of the lawyers, there were three women, who derailed capital punishment in the Soviet Union or in Russia in 1997. Can one woman impact her country? Absolutely. Meeting her, and then I went to a Baptist church service on January 26, 1991. And when I saw what they didn't have compared to what we take for granted every single Sunday, I said, I'm leaving my job at Christian Legal Society because I want to help Christian lawyers over there. So I left my job, two kids about to start college, Nikki to start college. This is not a good time to quit your job. When you've got three kids to start college, that is not a good time to quit your job. But I quit my job. I'm sitting behind an empty desk. And John Johnson, the law student, his partner, calls me up and he said, Sam, I just got an invitation to go to Sofia, Bulgaria. I can't go. John Johnson suggested I call you. John Johnson, nine years earlier, he stayed in my house for a week. So I said, Sofia, Bulgaria? Who wants to go to Sofia? Why not Paris? Or Bermuda or the Bahamas, you know? And I, I said, I'll think it over. See, the way I work with God usually is, God, I'm thinking this over. Hey, I got an idea for you. How about this one, God? That I, I usually think first and pray second. It's sort of the ready, fire, aim approach to life. <laughs> and, and the next day I get a call from Pasadena, California. The first one's from Seattle. And it's a total stranger, and he said to me, Mr. Erickson, I'm from Bulgaria. Can you go to Sophia, Bulgaria, meet the dean of the law school? He wants to meet a Christian lawyer. And I said to him, Mr. Popoff, until yesterday, I've never, ever been invited to Sophia, Bulgaria. And now within 24 hours, I get two invitations to go to Sophia, Bulgaria. And as we talked further, listen to this, folks, as we talked further, we discovered that 40 years earlier, in 1952, his mother and my father worked in the same office in Stockholm, Sweden. Now you talk about the author of the parade, the director of the parade. Isn't that lucky? No. That's blessing. That's the God we serve, folks. That's the God we serve. And John Johnson has opened up doors for me in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Now I'll tell you, availability, we're all available to do things. One brother in this church that I admire greatly is Nick Prezi. I don't know anybody in this church that does more visiting than Nick. I was just over visiting Don Fellers yesterday and Juanita Dempsey. And Nick had already been there. Now, why is it when Jesus said, I was sick and you looked after me? My dad is 93 years old. He and my mom lived together for 68 years. When I talked to him on the phone, he always says, it's lonely. Nobody ever visits. Folks, I would challenge you. Start visiting people that are shut in. Say, well, I'm not good at talking. And I said to Don yesterday, Don Fellers, do you need people who talk a lot? No, just come by and say, I'm praying for you. If you can't do that, how about just calling them up and, on the phone and say, I'm praying for you. Or a little note. Oh, you can't do that either. Bobby has been in marketing for 30 years. And she says that winners make appointments. Losers make excuses. <laughs> we can make all the excuses we want not to be available to people. But he wants us to be available. I was hungry, thirsty, sick, and in prison, and I was available. Moving on to why. Yielding your time, talent, and treasure. Never own or always steward. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Psalm 24, 1. 
And then Matthew 6.33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. After visiting some 23 countries from 1991 to 1998, I decided I couldn't just do this and try to encourage Christian lawyers to get together. We needed to bring them together. So in 1998, we held our first global convocation. We had about 40 lawyers from 25 countries. At that time, one of my assistants was a graduate of Wheaton College, and her parents had been missionaries to Uganda. And Jill said to me, can I invite Michael Chapita? He was the chief of staff of the president of Uganda, and he's a Christian. Can he come to this conference? I said, by all means, bring him over. So I met Mike Chapita, and he was heading up the Ugandan Christian Lawyer Fraternity at that time. But they had sort of, they were doing nothing. They came in 1998 and, and got energized. He went back and really organized the Christian lawyers in Uganda. And Uganda has had a sad history. In the 1970s, Idi Amin murdered a half a million Ugandans, including a lot of Christians. He was Muslim, and he just murdered, slaughtered a lot of Christians. Michael is now, as of a few weeks ago, the Attorney General of Uganda, a strong Christian brother, loves the Lord. The last couple of years, he and my colleague, Sam Casey, who's my right arm, he's general counsel in, in Christian legal services circles, I'm known as First Samuel, Sam Erickson. Sam Casey's known as Second Samuel. So it's First Samuel, Second Samuel. Well, Second Samuel has gone to Uganda several times to train in conflict resolution. One of the biggest issues facing African countries is land disputes. In the United States, we're very fortunate because of our English heritage, we have recording. We record all of our properties. When you buy a piece of property, you record the deed. They don't do that in Africa. It all goes to the chief. And the chief decides who gets the property. And you can imagine the conflict. How come he got it and I didn't get it? And so for the last several years, Michael Chapita with the Ugandan Christian Warrior Fellowship and the, and the Peace and Reconciliation Ministries of Africa, they've been working with these chiefs of some of the largest tribes in Uganda to, to resolve disputes in a biblical fashion and to set up a recording system. And a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sam was there doing some seminars. Now, one of the principles that Bobby and I learned 38 years ago, shortly after we got married, was never owner, always steward. Some of you know the story. We've been married for two months, three months, and then we're told that she has a terminal neuromuscular disease. Now, you, when you've been married for the, with, for the woman of your dreams, and you're told by neurologists it's over, that's a wake-up call. And what we learned going through that, it was a misdiagnosis because she was here this morning, but it was a mis what I learned was I thought she was my wife. And I was her husband, and I had my VW Beetle, and she had her Toyota, and I had my career with a fine law firm, and she had her career as a therapist. We had it. We bought our first little house before we got married. We had it all. And now it was over because we needed to learn never owner, always steward. See, it all belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. So we sat down, and we gave it all back. I gave Bobby back. She gave me back. I gave my career back. I gave my car back. And we decided 38 years ago that we would live a lifestyle consistent with he owns everything. Now, I've shared this principle for the last 38 years. Sam Casey, 2 Samuel, has been teaching this principle in Uganda. One of the largest tribes in northern Uganda where the Lord's Resistance Army, you heard of the Lord's Resistance Army, where they, they kidnap these boys and teach them how to kill and murder, to go back and kill their parents. This is northern Uganda. And, and Sam has been there with Mike Chapita and others to train them in, in, in these biblical principles. 
And the chief was taught, never owner, always steward. And a few weeks ago, his entire tribe, he taught his whole tribe, two million people, never owner, always steward. Never owner, always steward. Never owner, always steward. I'll tell you, I never thought in a million years that that little principle would be taught to two million Ugandans. Not only that, but the greeting that we have at, at Advocates International is grace and peace. Why that? Because Paul, who was a lawyer, he starts most of his letters, grace and peace. And so the tribal chief, a month ago in Uganda, puts out the order to two million in his tribe. From now on, the greeting will be grace and peace. 95% of them are Christians when they go to church. See, you yield your time, your talent, and treasure, and God takes it from there. That brings me to E, example. Why do this? Why have the proper perspective, the proper response, be available, and yield? Because we're supposed to be examples, be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This includes Albania. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. A story from hell holes to high hopes in Albania. John Johnson, that student, Sunday, March 22, 1992, he reads a little article in the Seattle newspaper that Albania was having an election. See, Albania had been a dictatorship, communist dictatorship, for 45 years. Their dictator, Enver Hoxha, in 1967, declared atheism to be the official religion of Albania. If you had a cross or a Bible in your possession, you would go to prison for 10 years. I've had a friend, a politician in Albania, who spent 26 years in prison because he was a Roman Catholic. That's the old Albania. Today, Enver Hoxha, the dictator, former dictator, his home is Grace Church of Tirana. His planted there by John MacArthur's Grace Community Church, where I spent 10 years back in the 70s. And the first evangelical seminary in history of Albania is in a dictator's former residence. Now, who's in control of that one? But that doesn't just happen. I've been back to Albania 22 times. Roger has been there 36 times because Roger, John Johnson's law partner, got two faxes in March, March 24, 1992. The first fax was from a friend of his in Europe saying, Dear Roger, I hear that you and Sam Erickson have been to Bulgaria two times. Could you please go to Albania, meet the Minister of Justice, and talk about ethics? And Roger calls me up and reads me, reads me this fax. I said, fine. He said, yeah, but listen to this other fax that came in 10 minutes earlier from Hawaii. Now, if you take a look at your globe, you go from Austria to Hawaii, about 12,000 miles apart, if you want land. And this earlier fax said, Dear Mr. Sherrard, we hear that you and Sam Erickson have been to, Albania, to Bulgaria two times. Could you please go to Tirana, Albania, meet the Minister of Justice and talk about ethics? And Roger reads these two faxes to me and says, What should we do? And I said, Roger, when you get two faxes within 10 minutes from 12,000 miles apart, inviting you to a country you, you never thought of visiting, a city you could not name, to meet a guy you don't know to talk about the same thing, you don't need a third fax. So we went to Albania. Roger's been back 36 times. I've been back 22. Last weekend, last week, we had the Albanian Supreme Court here for the seventh time. I picked him up at Dulles Airport. My friend, Second Samuel, picked up the luggage, and we, the two of us drove. I had an 11-seater, and he had my, my nitro, 
and we're driving to the hotel, downtown Washington, Churchill Hotel, pulled in, they emptied out. I asked the valet, how much is it going to cost to park our vans here? $35 a piece each night. $35 times two is 70 bucks times six is $420 just to park two vans. So I said to Sam, Sam, follow me. We're going to go down the street four blocks to the Albanian embassy. I'm going to ask the ambassador if I can park in his driveway. So he says, fine. So he follows me out. I jump in the car. Before I turn the ignition on, guess who's walking straight at me? The Albanian ambassador. I didn't even know he knew where we were. And I rolled down the window and I said, Mr. Ambassador, can we park our vans in your driveway? And he says, you can have it all week. Now Sam Casey, 2nd Samuel, sitting there shaking his head like, I don't believe this. And he, ro I ro he rolls down the window and I, and I said, that was the Albanian ambassador. He gave us permission to park in his driveway all week. He says, I can't believe it. See, that's the problem. That's the kind of God we serve. A parking space, what's so big about parking space? When you need a parking space, that's more important than a million bucks. Okay? The next evening, we had dinner at the home of a West Point graduate. He's a lawyer, partnered with one of Washington's finest law, law firms. And after, it was just the eight of these justices from Albania. None of them are believers. But they've watched this for 17 years. I brought one justice over 12 years ago who was blind, and we, my, my ophthalmologist, just, ophthalmologist did laser surgery. He returned home with vision. One of these justices just told me a couple weeks ago, Ulvi always talks about you, Sam, because he was blind, and he came and visited you and stayed in your home for five weeks, and he went back to the site. See, this is the kind, I was blind, we just sang the song, I was blind, and now I see. And so we were at this dinner, and I said, now I want to share with you why we do this. Why does Roger go to Albania 36 times? Why does George open up his home? Why does Sam drive a van? Why is Sam Erickson, who went to the law school, driving a van? I said, because some time back, my best friend, who's a great, who knows how to fish, he and I were out in the lake fishing. A storm kicked up. And I did something very foolish. In the middle of that storm, I stood up and I fell overboard. And my friend, strong swimmer, I was not a strong swimmer, he jumped in and he pulled me out and he saved my life. But he drowned, saving me. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, if your best friend died for you, what would you do for him? What if he left a family? What would you do for his family? Would you ever say anything bad about your best friend? Or would you talk about your best friend? Would you do whatever your best friend wanted to do? I said, that's why George and Roger and Sammy, see, our best friend 2,000 years ago is Jesus. And we were going down. We were dying. And we were standing before the judge. Because one thing we're all going to do is we're all going to stand before God as judge. And he's going to judge us on our lives. And when we stand in front of judgment, I know I, I'm going to, with 65 years of breaking the law, it's over. And in walks my friend, my lawyer, Jesus Christ. He walks in and he stands right next to me and he says, Your Honor, I'm willing to serve Sam's sentence. He's guilty as sin, guilty as charge. He deserves death, but I will serve his sentence. 
And the judge turns to me and says, Mr. Erickson, that's the most gracious offer I've ever heard. I'm willing to accept that, but it's your decision. And that's the way I presented the gospel to eight judges of the Albanian Supreme Court who remembered that Ulvi 12 years ago came to America blind, but now he went home with sight. How do you minister to judges who have never heard the gospel? You make it relevant in ways that they understand it. See, a year ago, we had another delegation from Albania, Supreme Court, and one of them that I'd grown close to, one morning wakes up and his eye is totally infected. It's the size of a golf ball. It, it's, 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 shut. it's just the worst I've ever seen. It, it was infected. It looked terrible. A nurse said, you've got to go to an ophthalmologist. This is not good. He was not a Christian, not a believer. And he comes over to me at lunchtime on Tuesday and he said, Mr. He says, Sam, can you pray for me for five seconds? I've never been asked to pray for somebody for five seconds. I mean, how can a lawyer do anything in five seconds? And so I stood there in front of the Thurgood Marshall Judicial Center right next to a Union Station and I prayed for him, for his eye. The next morning, his eye was totally healed. Guess who was the most surprised man in the room? <laughs> and I asked him that evening, I said, tell me what happened when I prayed for you. He said, when you prayed for me, I had this, this sensation going through me. There was this, this energy going through me. But let me tell you, when Jesus healed people, 32 times he healed people, in almost every instance, the person who was sick did something. The blind would cry out to Jesus. The lame, he said, take up your bed and walk. They needed to do something. The, the man with the withered arm, he reached out. The woman with the blood issue, she touched his garment. See, the sick needed to exercise the faith. And when you said to me, Sam, will you pray for me? That was your faith. It was not Sam Erickson's faith. All I was was a conduit. And I prayed for you. Four days later, he accepted Christ and gave his testimony to 800 people, including his colleagues from Albania. See, that's what you do. Little things, pray for somebody with an eye infection. You never know when you make yourself available to be examples. And that leads me to results. LORD's strategy links advocates in 150 nations. Our home office, we only have four people. My life verse is I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. To wrap up, I've got two minutes. Last story. A few years ago, a Mongolian justice, I'll back it up a little bit, 11 years ago, I met a young lawyer in, in Mongolia. I'd been there five times. He was 22 years old. And he had, he'd been a Christian for two years. He had this idea of starting a Christian lawyer group in the Mongolia. Mongolia, seven Christian lawyers in the whole country. 20 years ago, there was not one believer in Mongolia. Today, there are 80,000. There are 400 churches in Mongolia. And 11 years ago, Basin Hu, who's been in our church here, Basin Hu decided he wanted to form this Christian lawyer group to do legal work for widows, for prisoners, for religious freedom, human rights, all this stuff. So I liked what he was doing, so I started supporting him. And he has helped the church like no other person in all of Mongolia. And Mongolia is stuck between Russia and China. That's not a place you want to be stuck between. It's three times the size of Texas in terms of land with two and a half million people. Well, recently, because of Basin Hu's success, he's had some real opposition. There are some atheists and some Buddhists that just want to take him down and out. Because in the capital, there are 98 churches and 68 temples, Buddhist temples, and they think there are too many churches, so they want to tear down the churches. Well, six years ago, a justice from Mongolia that I got him to know was going to study here in Washington, D.C., but he needed transportation. So he asked me if I had a bicycle. 
do I have a bicycle? My daughter, Monica, she won a, a bike in a raffle. It was sitting in our garage. So I lent him a bike. He didn't want a Mercedes. He just wanted a, a bicycle. So I lent him a bicycle. And for four years, he's riding this bicycle in Washington, D.C. This last Tuesday, I was having lunch with another Mongolian lawyer who's studying in Northern Virginia. And I said, whatever happened to Gonzorik? He said, oh, he started his own, con he's consulting with, with the law firm in town. He said, well, give me his phone number. I got his phone number and his email. I called home, no answer on the phone, so I sent him an email. Dear Gonzorik, Basin who needs some help because he's being attacked in, in Mongolia. Please call. Thursday night this week, he calls me at 10 o'clock. Where are you, Gonzorik? In Washington? No, I'm in Mongolia. Really? I mean, am I surprised? Why should he be in Mongolia? Because I needed Gonzorik. The next morning, Basin, two days ago, Basin sends me an email. Dear, dear Sam, the court dismissed all the charges, dismissed all the fines. Praise Lord, I can continue my work of 11 years. And thanks for sending Gonzorik. See, this is the God we serve. Fear not, do not be afraid. And you say, well, that's, that's so big, you, I, I'm not doing international stuff. That's right, but you can do things local. Pastor Everett, I was with him yesterday, and I said, what's the greatest challenge you have at this church? He says, I just don't know all the people. I, I get to know the people and their needs and their resources, and here's my challenge to you. Get in touch with everybody. He's looking for help. We just heard this morning, we need, need nursery help. We need people to visit. We need people to make calls. We need people to do what Jesus said. This is what people that follow me and call me as their followers do. It's there. And when you start doing this, you too will see God in the details of life with the results that you will see God at work. This week I met a financial planner in Northern Virginia, and we talked about these things. I spent 12 hours with him. I have never been 12 hours with a person in my life who had more scripture committed to memory than this guy. He, he, just, he just had the Bible committed to scripture, to memory, and he would just bring it out. And then he said, do you know why, do you know why God answers prayers? And I said, yeah, it's because it's God's will. He prayed consistent with God's will. And he said, no, he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, husbands, respect your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I had never noticed that, that how we treat our wives will decide whether or not God answers our prayers. The same thing in terms of wives in terms of the witness before their husband. It's the same idea. And honor your father and your mother for children. Respecting others and God will answer the prayers. So what can we all do? Next week is Mother's Day. Hey, let's start a year where we honor mother and wives 365 days a year rather than just the second Sunday in May. And when we do that, we honor our wives, we honor our husbands. God will answer prayers. So thank you for listening. We serve a God who is the author of the parade, the author of your life. And because of that, we do not need to be afraid.